Welcome to No Apology with the Bible Idiots. I'm Emily Danielson, and it is Wednesday, and that means it is time for our long-form teaching once again. And Chris is going to take us to the book of 2 Timothy chapter 4. The title of this message is Scenes from the Stadium Tunnel. Yes, another sports illustration, but this competition illustration may not be one that you've ever heard before. So welcome once again. Here's Pastor Chris, Scenes from the Stadium Tunnel. I love to watch games. I love to watch sports. And one of my favorite parts of the game, especially when I was growing up, would be the post-game interviews. You know, they interview the players and the coaches from both the winning and the losing teams. Well, nowadays they've got cordless mics and they can run out on the field or on the sidelines. But back in the day, whether it was coming off the ice rink, going off the football field, or in England coming off the pitch of their football field, which we call soccer, it's always right in front of that stadium tunnel is where the interviews used to be. And the winners would always say something like this, well, it was a good day for us. We were able to execute our game plan. Everything worked out good for us. The losers, they'd say something like, well, you know, it's just we weren't able to do this, and if this would have changed and that would have been different, then maybe we would have come out the winners. Those other guys just had a better day. You've all seen the post-game interviews. Well, you know, talking about the game is much easier when you're standing in that stadium tunnel headed towards the locker room, isn't it? Life is a lot like that. It's not easy to look ahead and see what's going to happen, but we can all look back on the field in which we just played. And there are times when we walk away winning, and there are times when we walk away losing. And the verses I have for you today in 2 Timothy is Paul's post-game interview. So let's stand and read our text together today. It's found in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 8, and I read in Jesus' name. I solemnly charge you before God and Jesus Christ, who is going to judge the living and the dead, and because of his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, rebuke, correct, and encourage with great patience and teaching. For the time will come when people will not tolerate sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, will multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear what they want to hear. They will turn away from hearing the truth and will turn aside to myths. But as for you, exercise self-control in everything. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time for my departure is close. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. There is reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, and not only to me, but to all those who loved his appearing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, just let these be your words today. Encourage your children. Strengthen us all for the journey and for the walk. In your name we pray, amen. Be seated, please. Now, as I read these verses, I kind of, this week, was picturing Paul standing there for that post-game interview, thus the title, Scenes from the Stadium Tunnel. And I think that Paul is looking back over the game of his life, and he's not talking about when he held the coat to see Stephen murdered, and he, when he was on, he, 
was only talking about his journey as a servant of Christ, because that's all that mattered to Paul. And for all intents and purposes, I mean, Paul's ministry's over. It's done. He's sitting in a prison, nothing to look forward to but execution at the hands of the Romans. This is what his future is. He knows his time is up, but he leaves us this post-game interview, and I'm glad he did, because here's a man who played a good game. He didn't fumble the ball. He was not sacked by the enemy. He stumbled a few times, but he reached the end zone of life with his ministry and his testimony intact. And I think that what he says here, we should be interested in. Listen to the powerful words what he said. He, in effect, is writing his own epitaph. You know what an epitaph is, right? It's those words your loved ones will have carved into your headstone when you die and what will be said at your funeral. My favorite, most famous headstone is, Here lies Lester Moore, four slugs from a 44, no less, no more. You know, (laughs) my epitaph, Emily says, is going to be, he tried. (laughs) Because I will always try. I think Paul would have supervised the chiseling of any inscription into his headstone. It would have been the words of verse 7 of our text today. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. In these words, these verses, we find the game interview of a faithful servant of Jesus Christ. And he breaks down the entire Christian journey into like three little neat, clear components. And that's the message for today. That's your fill in the blanks in your sermon notes. And as he stands at that post-game interview, looking out the tunnel on the field of life that he just finished playing, the three points he gave us, number one, was he talks about the warfare. He talks about the warfare. He uses words like fought and fight. and The same word in our English language is the word agony. They were used in Paul's day to refer to the ancient Greek games where contestants struggled against one another for supremacy. The contest that Paul has in mind is, you would have to pretty much say based on that word usage, is wrestling. His desire is to remind us that we're not on a playground, we're on a battleground. In our Christian walk, we're engaged in a battle, and the best word to describe the battle is agony. So let's see what he has to say about our battles. When you enter into this warfare, how do you get in? First, you get in by being born again. As soon as a person is saved by grace, they become a spiritual creature. Before their conversion, they're dead to sin, Ephesians 2.1. They're dead to the things of God. They're willing to participate in the works and activities of the devil. However, now that they're converted, they become alive to God and his work. Let's look at a scripture that says this. It's in John 14, 17. He is the spirit of truth. The world is unable to receive him because it doesn't see him or know him. But you do know him because he remains with you and will be in you. Now, the problem is that this is the fact that the old man still lives in us as well, the old person, the old woman, if you will, the old human being, the old nature. And it creates tremendous amount of spiritual conflict for us, for the life of the believer. If you don't have conflict, if you don't have problems coming your way as you walk in the Spirit, examine yourself to see that you're actually in the faith. 
The more the conflict comes, the more we're closer to doing bigger things for the kingdom, is what it seems to me. Galatians 5, 15, I'm sorry, 16 and 17. It says this, I say then, walk by the Spirit, and you will certainly not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what, it is, what is against the Spirit, and the Spirit desires what against the flesh. These are opposed to each other, so you don't do what you want. I hate that part. I mean, I want to just set it up and just run with it. It's called the narrow path, and you're running that narrow path, and some days are a lot better than others, aren't they? See, the old nature still desires the old way of living. And the new nature wants to please the Lord. And now add to the fact Satan will do everything in his power to try to get you to stumble. And all you, all you have now in your hand is a recipe for conflict and battles. So, okay, we're in spiritual battles. If you want to serve the Lord, it's a spiritual battle. Done. Now what? Who's the enemy? Man, woman, human, people are never the enemy. They are never the enemy. They are used by the enemy for his purposes. I can be used. You can be used. That's where grace comes in, right? Ephesians 6.12 tells us man is never going to be the enemy. If you want a memory verse for your life, this is it. Ephesians 6.12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. Therefore, we need to learn how to forgive one another and walk in love as the Lord commanded us. But we still have to have a balance of truth and love because we are also not called to be the doormats of the world. So having that understanding is part of the spiritual growth. See, Oftentimes in our zeal, we get guilty of fighting one another instead of allowing God to bless the situation. Ephesians, I'm sorry, Galatians 5.15 says, But if you bite and devour one another, watch out, or you will be consumed by one another. Got to be careful. Focus on who the enemy is. Why? Because Satan tries to look like one of us. Satan is that chameleon. They call it a wolf in sheep's clothing. 2 Corinthians 11.14 says it best. It says, And no wonder, for Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Do you know that in other parts of the Scripture, as you're in prayer, test the spirit that's speaking to you? How do you do that? Ask the spirit if it'll confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of your life. Talk to Jesus. He will speak to you. The sheep hear his voice. See, the enemy in this warfare is the devil's business, the devil's words coming through human beings, and it gets inside the church. This is why, as a church, Christ built the church, and hell can't stand up against it, which is why unity in the church is so important. And if you step out of bounds and you're wrong, you need to humbly repent. And when you humbly repent, there needs to be spiritual people there who will restore you and love you. That is a summation of what it means to be a covenant partner in an authentic good ground ministry. And nobody rolls perfect. See, Paul says, I fought the good fight. He is not taking credit 
for his successful ministry. He's echoing the same thing that's in Galatians 2, that he may be the one in, his, in the battle, but the energy comes from the one who lives inside his heart. Thankfully, we do not have to fight spiritual battles in our own power, but we do need to fight them. We need to stand firm. We need to know the truth, and we need to hold on to the truth, and we need to walk that narrow path, and sometimes that's going to create us out of our comfort zone. That's going to create conflicts, and that's going to create issues that have to be dealt with. Notice the weapons of his warfare that are designed to enable us to stand. The full armor of God in Ephesians 6, of course. But I want you to notice these weapons. You hear about the helmet of this and the shield of that and the sword of this. It's always a defensive position, except for one thing. Well, it's two things in one. The Word of God and prayer, that's our forward motion. And they must be used for the glory of God. Carnal people wield carnal weapons, stinging arrows of gossip, cruel spears of personal attack, sharp words of threatening, harsh whips of cowardice, deceptions, weapons of evil. We have the Word of God and prayer. There are times where I get so empty, I don't even know what to pray for. Sometimes, oh, bless this person, heal that one. Lord, you know, you're the great physician, do this. Lord, you know, I just, and, and sometimes you take that and then you take the pray without ceasing where you're just thinking prayerful thoughts all the time. And sometimes in the middle, you just get worn down. So you want to know what you can do? Pray the Bible. Pray a psalm. Pray a proverb and watch what God does. Point number two, Paul talks about the walk. He talks about the walk. He goes from the wrestling arena to track and field. He has in the mind the runners of, of the Greek games. They were required to run great distances in the hope of being the victor. And Paul gives us insight into his running. He mentions the race. The word race in King James Version is the course. I have finished my course literally refers to a career or a race. I have finished my race. Paul reminds us that we have a race to run. You have one, I have one. He echoes this thought in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. It says, therefore, since we have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance in the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with the endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eye on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Verse 3, but consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, so that you won't grow weary and give up. There are a few thoughts I'd like to pass about the race that we are engaged in today. Number one, the race is individual. It's individual in nature. I am not competing against you. You are not competing against me. We must remember this, or comparisons can creep in and cause us to stumble. Number two, I can't run your race and you can't run mine. The individual course that we are to run has been planned out by the Lord. 
He decides whether the way is going to be easy or difficult on a day-by-day basis or on a decade-by-decade basis. He decides where we run, how long we run, and what the path is that we're supposed to run on. So the best thing we can do is stay in the lane that God has put us in and run our own race. Sometimes you will hear a pastor say, honestly, from the heart, I don't want to be a pastor. I'm called to it. It's my, it's my lane. I got to do it. I ran from being a pastor for a long time because I'm not a, I'm just not a good guy. <laughs> I mean, I have issues. You know, the whole gentle as a dove part, I struggle with that. But I can't run your race. You can't run mine. The best thing we can do is stay in our lanes, and at the end of the day, for myself, without having to explain your race, I explain my race on Judgment Day. And just so you know, part of my race, and especially you covenant partners, part of your race as well, because you agreed to it when you signed the slip, is as your pastor, I'm going to be held accountable for what kind of spiritual food I serve. And so as long as I'm here, y'all getting steak and some of the most high-dense vegetables that the Spirit can offer, and I'm not going to apologize for it. I want you strong to run your race. But make no mistake, it's your race. It's not mine. Number three, there's only one person to watch in this race. We are not to watch one another, but we are to look to Jesus. He is the only one who matters. Number four, whether your race is short or long, you can finish well. The judge will not judge us based on how someone else ran. Our own race will stand alone. And I want you to note the reality of what Paul said here. He used the word finished. If you listen closely, you can almost hear the apostles say, it's done. The race that he's talking about, that all of the readers in the first century would have been totally aware of, was the marathon that came out of the Greek games, which was based in the event that shook down in 490 B.C. Athenians won a crucial crucial and decisive battle over the forces of King Darius of Persia on a plain near a small Greek coastal village of Marathon. That's where the word comes from. One of the Greek soldiers ran nonstop from the battlefield to Athens to carry the news of victory, but he ran with such unreserved effort that he fell dead at the feet of those to whom he just delivered the message. The marathon races that are popular today are named after that, of course, but this guy gave maximum effort. He ran the course that was in front of him, and it has been said throughout the centuries, that there's no nobler way for a soldier to die than what this guy gave everything till his heart exploded. He finished his course, and he did so, Paul finished his course, and he did so with, I want to say the word pleasure, knowing he was going to die knowing that he had done the right thing. If you go on in the text later, go to verse 10, you're going to see that he didn't have a lot of the other ones around and finished the course with him. A lot of them left him. The race is difficult at times, and it's easy to wander off course and get to the wayside. That's why 
the caution of Hebrews 12, 2 that I just read you, to get rid of anything that would hinder us from running a good race. And I don't know about you, but I want to finish well. This message is all part of the basics that we're leading up to August 1st as we celebrate one year together as a church. It doesn't matter what happened before. We have this year, we have new covenant partnerships, we have new ministries. We're going to take a look at what can we do as a church to be better for the kingdom, better for the community, better for the covenant partners, and better for Christ. And we're going to run hard, and we're going to finish well. Not everyone in this room is going to finish well. That's just reality. But here's another reality. You can. You can finish well. If you keep your eyes on Jesus and you run to please him alone, starting right now, and if you have been doing that for a while, keep going. See, Paul also notes the reward these competitors in ancient Greece would run for a little thing of oak leaves or, or laurel leaves. In our day, the Olympics are about to start in Tokyo. They're going to run for bronze, silver, and gold. All of that's going to go away. Paul looks beyond the stadium tunnel out onto the field. And he sees a day when the Lord Jesus Christ, the official in the race of life, will give him a crown of victory that will never, ever pass away. Paul is telling us to keep running. Don't bother waiting around for men to get rewards from or to cheer you on or to just give you kudos that you're such a cool Christian. Because every time you've encouraged somebody and they bless you back with words like that, you smile and in your heart, you authentic Christians, you know who gave you the strength to do any of it. And it's awesome. Paul calls him the righteous judge because he's watching our race. Men may get to, may not get it. Men, men and women around you may not understand it. But Jesus does. And he's the author and finisher of our faith. Point three as we bring it home today. He talks about the word. Paul ends his post-game interview by calling attention to how he handled the word of God. Paul was a preacher. Some say that what he says here only applies to preachers. I disagree. I think it applies to everybody who knows Jesus Christ as their Savior. Paul says, I have kept the faith. He means he has guarded it like it was a precious treasure, and it is. How did Paul guard the faith? He maintained it in its pure form and passed it down to others who would do the same. There are all kinds of opinions as to what the church should be and how it should operate, but one of our primary missions is this. We need to be a vault for the truth. We need to be a spiritual Fort Knox guarding the precious word of God. You alter it one bit, you're not faithfully passing it down to the next generation, which is rampant in this country right now, the effectiveness and health of your church is going to start to fade away, whether you see it or not. If they've altered the message, they've slipped into air. No way to put it other than straight up. And Paul proclaimed the master, the master of the word, the master of our life, he kept the faith, and he kept sharing that faith. Like, you hear about, like, the hope diamonds and some of these things that are behind glass and no one can touch it. Our treasure, this faith, is just the opposite. The more we give it away, the more powerful it is. It's for everybody. In 2 Corinthians, Paul actually says this. He says, For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord and ourselves as your servant, 
for Jesus' sake. Guarded the gospel, guarded the truth, and the business was giving it away. Paul protected the messenger as well. He said, I have kept the faith. Here's a man who reached the end of his journey, and he's still clutching the same message, not just with his hands, but with his heart. Through all the battles he fought, through all the lonely valleys he has traveled, Paul never fell out of love with Jesus. And when those moments, those wishes, like in Field of Dreams, when Moonlight Graham is talking with Ray Costello, a man would die if he knew his dream came this close and he couldn't get it. The real tragedy is that what if you get what the world wants you to have and you miss out on your faith journey? Like Doc Graham said, not being a, do- being a doctor for only five minutes, that would have been the real tragedy. See, if you go to verses 9 through 12 of our text today, which I did not read, you're going to see that Paul's lonely, he's discouraged, he's facing death, but he still held on to the relationship with the Lord. He didn't need to go back and change anything. He had run the race, he had fought the good fight, and he had kept the faith. If you keep your eyes on the Lord, you can run the race of life. And Jesus will put dreams in your heart that honor the kingdom, that give you a fulfillment you can't conjure up with anything in this world. I want my post-game interview to be able to say I kept the faith. Not everyone's going to be able to say that, but you can. Run for him and him alone. Regardless of what you and I say about our lives or what others may write about us when we are no more, God has the final word. Maybe you need to talk to the Lord about warfare, the walk in the word. Because there will be a post-game interview. Let's be able to give a good one that's honoring to the Lord. When you stand in the stadium tunnel of your life, I want you to be able to say, I have fought the good fight, I have finished my course, my race, and I have kept the faith. With the help of the king, you can. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we need you. We need you every moment of every day. And the fact that you love us with a love that we can't conjure up is amazing. Strengthen us in your truth and in your love. And let you be our eternal hope day by day. And let the spiritual things be the things that we want to hold on to. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for tuning in to our Sunday message. To donate, request prayer, or to contact Pastor Chris, you can write to Lifehouse Church at P.O. Box 661, Abilene, Kansas, 67410, or go online at lifehouse-church.com. On behalf of the entire congregation, thanks again for your support.